Welcome to Archaeoed, a podcast about the civilizations of the ancient Americas. You know, the ones that Western history books spend about a page discussing. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Barnhart. I've been an archaeologist, an explorer, and a seeker of esoteric knowledge all around the Americas for over 30 years now. This podcast is just me, freed from the lecture podium and talking like we're just having a beer together. Sometimes I'll tell stories of my adventures. Other times I'll share what I've learned about the various cultures that were here before Columbus. Basically, it'll be anything I feel like talking about, because this is my podcast, Beholden the No One. I'm just having fun with it. I hope you do too. So without further ado, kick back, relax, and let's get started. Season 4, Episode 5, Mapping Palenque. Happy New Year! It's the holidays, so I decided it's time for another fun and easy episode. Another Stories from the Field episode. This time, I'll talk about the Palenque Mapping Project, a three-year effort directed by yours truly from 1998 to 2000. Palenque is widely considered the most beautiful of all the Maya ruins. Though almost certainly older in origin, its heyday was during the Maya Classic period, roughly 400 to 800 CE. Despite being found very early on, in the 1700s, no one had made a complete map of it. Multiple projects had mapped its ceremonial center, and a few had identified the major outlying groups, but Palenque's environment made doing much more very difficult. It had the dense rainforest covering it like most Maya ruins, but it was also built into a mountainside with seven rivers running through it. All that water made the jungle thick and super difficult to get through. In many places, we cut tunnels through the vegetation, Tunnels that would close behind us just days later like we never cut them. It was also full of deadly snakes, mostly fair to lance. Looking back through my field notebooks for this episode, I remembered that snake encounters were almost daily. They became side notes. I'd write things like, Today we killed a 2.5 meter Nawiaka. That's Maya for fair to lance. That's an eight-foot-long snake for those doing the math. When I began the Palenque mapping project, the best map of Palenque had 329 buildings. At the end of my three years, I had mapped 1,180 structures. What's more, the whole city was built upon terraces so it wouldn't wash off the mountainside during rainy seasons. They were hard to map, and I know I missed some of them, but still, I documented 16 linear kilometers of terracing. That's 10 miles. Years later, it was celebrated as the most detailed and accurate map ever made of an ancient Maya city. The truth is that that happened because I didn't really have any formal training as a mapper. I just did my best, and I'm what my kids refer to as a try-hard. So, it came out really good. So good, in fact, 
that years later a German museum displayed my Palenque map in a history of archaeological mapping exhibit. They said my methodology, its accuracy, and my use of color were all paradigm-shifting achievements. I didn't know that. And sadly, I've forgotten what museum that was. If any of my listeners want to track that down, I'd be grateful. One important thing to note here at the start of this episode. I did not do this alone. We were a small crew, usually only four to five of us at a time, but without my friends and colleagues, this map would have never been made. I'll name key players as I go, and occasionally not name people to protect the guilty. But as I continue to refer to it as my map, please know that I was just the leader of an incredibly brave group of individuals. This story will likely span multiple episodes. That is, if you like this first part. I'm still evaluating feedback on field stories versus informational episodes. Let me know if you have a preference. So, okay, let's start at the very beginning, before I ever knew that mapping Palenque was possible. The year is 1997. I'm 28 years old, and I've been working at Program for Belize for four seasons. I discovered the lost city of Mashna, but things were not going well for me. The project director had given Mashna to another university's field school and told me to go further out into the jungle. The other grad student project leaders were elitist snobs who I was completely sick of. So when the field season ended in late June, I took a bus from Belize to Palenque. A big annual conference called the Palenque Roundtable was about to start and all the biggest names in Maya archaeology were going to be there. I was resigned to give up on Mashna as my PhD topic and look for another project to join. Specifically, I was looking for Richard Hansen. He led the most remote jungle project I knew about, the El Mirador project in the middle of the still mostly unexplored Peten rainforest of Guatemala. My plan was to offer my mapping services to him in exchange for using his camp to explore further out into the unknown. My bus arrived to Palenque Station at about 5 a.m. I knew that my friend Christopher Powell had a room in the hotel of the conference, so I took a taxi there. I thought it would be funny to act like upset hotel staff, so I banged on his door and yelled, Senor Powell! I own a problema con su tarjeta de crédito. That's Mr. Powell. There's a problem with your credit card. After banging a couple of times and yelling this, an angry woman opened the door. Now, this was a famous anthropologist there for the conference. I won't name her because I'm really hoping that she never figures out that I was that idiot. But to make matters worse, I asked, Are you Wendy Ashmore? She replied, No and slammed the door in my face. Later that day, I did find Christopher. He had just started working at Palenque, a big new project at the Temple of the Cross with Alfonso Morales and Merle Green Robertson. To my surprise, he told me that Ina, the National Institute of Anthropology and History, was about to offer me the job of mapping Palenque. 
The night before was a big party hosted by the new project. The head of Ina in Mexico City was there. As tequila drinking went deep into the night, he started giving Palenque's chief archaeologist, Arnaldo Gonzalez Cruz, a lot of crap about never having made a map of Palenque. As Arnaldo stammered through his excuses, Chris spoke up. He said, My friend Ed is a great mapper, and he'll be here tomorrow. The head of Ina replied, Good. Arnaldo, hire him and make us a map. And truth be told, that's how it happened. Drunken smack talk got me the job. I did find Hansen and offer him my deal, but he was not really impressed. He kept saying, Do you think you have the cojones to face five-meter-long crocodiles? Because they're out there. Looking back, that seemed very Captain Hook of him, and admittedly, I was a bit of a lost boy. But now I had an offer to map Palenque. I didn't need Hansen or El Mirador's camp anymore. I left Palenque with a letter in my hand from Arnaldo, an official invitation from Ina to map the city of Palenque. That fall, I set about the task of applying for grants and researching the history of mapping of Palenque. Well, okay, this is a good moment in this story for my first commercial break. When I return, I'll tell you how I won my grants and about my rocky start at Palenque. The 2023 Mayan calendar just came in, and I think it's one of the prettiest I've ever produced. It's a wall calendar that correlates our regular Christian calendar with the dates of the Maya calendar. The Solkeen, Hob, and Long Count dates for each day of 2023 are displayed, along with a collection of important dates from ancient Maya history. The photos for each month are spectacular. They're from the 12 winners of our annual Maya photo contest, the most talented photographers of the growing Maya Exploration Center community. I only print a thousand every year, and they go fast. Buying one not only supports our nonprofit mission, but it gives you a whole new way to think about the passage of time. To get yours, just log on to www.mayan-calendar.com. That's Mayan with an N-calendar, with the words separated by a dash mark. Support research and the perpetuation of the Maya calendar by getting yours today. I was crazy busy that fall, living in an apartment on East Riverside with my brother Fred. I was a grad student under Linda Sheely and a full-time adjunct professor at Texas State University in San Marcos. Back then it was called Southwest Texas State University. It was my second year of teaching anthropology classes there. Honestly, I didn't like it. I should have been grateful that I had obtained a rare teaching job at a good college, but I wasn't. My intro to anthropology class was full of students who didn't want to be there, and the textbook I was mandated to use was boring. I would think to myself, did I just do all those adventures to land here? Was this the end goal of my archaeological career? The carrot dangling in front of me 
the Palenque Mapping Project, was what I really wanted to do. Consulting with Linda Sheely, we decided that I should ask FAMSI for the money. FAMSI stands for Foundation for the Advancement of Mesoamerican Studies, Inc. It was a nonprofit created by a wealthy stockbroker named Lou Ranieri. He had a big Maya ceramics collection. Sheely, Justin Kerr, and others convinced him to start supporting archaeology. He put $5 million of his money in an account that made 5% interest per year. That amounted to $250,000 to support a small staff and a dozen or so small grants per year of max $10,000. The amazing thing is that Ranieri actually never gave his money. He kept that $5 million. He just let the interest go to FAMSI. So by the way, if any of you listeners have five million bucks lying around and want to let the interest rain down on Maya Exploration Center, I promise to do great things with it. Sheely was on the board, which decided who would get the grants, so she couldn't really help me a lot. But the advice she did give was great. Sadly, she had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and was getting weaker by the day. I had to go to her house to meet with her, where she sat in her favorite chair covered with a blanket and her cat Balam on her lap. At one point, we were looking at the best map of Palenque from Merle Green Robertson's book called Sculptures of Palenque. Large areas of that map said simply, unmapped but full of buildings. I started to make fun of it when Linda stopped me and said, hey, do you know who made that map? I meekly replied, you did, Linda? She said, that's right, and it's a fine map. Then with a smile, she added, but it could use some work. I submitted a grant proposal to FAMSI for their maximum award, 10000 for one year. That fall, I received their reply, which was shocking and unprecedented. They told me to apply for more money and a full three years of support. I quickly did so and ended up with $15,000 a year, $45,000 total. That may not seem like a lot, but it was a king's ransom in terms of archaeological grants. In fact, a colleague of mine at the time did an analysis of the grants given to archaeology grad students from 1998 to 2000, and I had won the most of any student in America. Ivy League students included. I also managed to keep more of that money than anyone. Universities take overhead fees out of any grants awarded to students or faculty, at least 40%. I just looked it up, and UT's overhead take is now a terrible 58.5% of any grant. But I didn't apply to FAMSI as a UT grad student. As an individual, I saved myself from having at least $20,000 taken out of my budget. The other workaround was my direct association with INA. All foreigner-led archaeological projects in Mexico must pay INA 20% of their operating budget. But I was working for Arnaldo, the on-site INA archaeologist. 
That meant I was technically working for Ina and exempt from their fees. The one thing the FAMSI grant would not allow was equipment purchases, and I needed a good computer to do the work. That's where Linda and her husband David Sheely stepped in to personally help. They gave me the money to buy the computer. Back in those days, still 1997, you couldn't just go to Best Buy and buy a computer. You could custom order one, but that was crazy expensive. But lucky for me, my brother Fred was working for IBM and knew how to build one. The Sheelys paid for all the parts, about $1,200, and Fred put it together for me for free. So by December 1997, I had everything ready to go. I had permissions, grants, equipment, and even a professional survey team to help me get the project started. I resigned from my professor position at Texas State and once again stuck my brother with no roommate. By the way, Fred took me back, but Texas State never did. But whatever, I didn't want that job anyway. In early February of 1998, I flew to Villahermosa with the professional survey crew I had hired and we traveled by road the rest of the way to Palenque. It was Alfonso Morales who found that crew for me, through connections he had made working at Caracol in Belize. Alfonso also put me up in his house with his field crew and fed me. His brother Chato's wife, Alejandra, fed us. She was Italian-born, so the food was great. By the way, Alfonso died a few months ago. Looking back... I could not have made the map of Palenque without his help. And I was one of dozens of people that Alfonso supported in similar ways. The world is a poorer place without him. Rest in peace, Alfonso. But back to the start of the project. I had done a lot of good mapping in Belize, but it was all by tape and compass. I had some experience with professional survey equipment, but I planned on using a newish technology called a laser theodolite. It still used a sighting device atop a tripod, but the pole with hash marks was replaced by a pole with a prism. The machine, the laser theodolite, would shoot lasers into the prism on top of the survey rod. It would record then the XYZ position of that rod in reference to its own. I wanted to know how to use this machine up and down, so I hired the professional crew to teach me. In a perfect world, I would have hired them for all three years, but I couldn't afford that. Instead, I had them for two weeks. The two guys I hired were brothers, Tom and Ty Sweener. They ran North Star Land Surveying in Petoskey, Michigan. Great guys, classic brothers, always competing with each other. Tom was the older brother, and Ty was always pushing back on his authority. They were great surveyors and tough as nails. In the two weeks that they were there, we mapped the entire ceremonial precinct and a few sections of jungle. I watched them like a hawk, took notes, and asked lots of questions. They were kind and patient teachers. The cleared area of the tourist park was a good place to learn. We could take many shots from a single location. But the accuracy of the map was all about not accumulating error when we moved the machine from one location to another. 
Each time the machine was moved, we had to establish the new point and then move the machine to that new station and backshoot the old station. If there was an error, you might not see it. To avoid that, you could do the whole process twice or even three times and average your math. If you did end up with error anyway and saw it in your map, you could do this mathematical thing that they taught me that was called closing the loop, where you mathematically adjusted all the points and tried to fix it with the best solution possible. But I hated that math and didn't want to do that, so I was always very, very careful to make sure that my stations were solid and my loops closed. I learned from them very well and was ready to take over by the start of March. But there was another big challenge, one I haven't mentioned yet. His name was Dick Bistrup. The Sweeners were Dick's recommendation, and Dick was doing survey work for Alfonso in the Cross Group Project. Dick had also surveyed at Caracol. That's where Alfonso met him. The Sweeners used to work for Dick, but he had retired some years back. Dick was probably 75 at the time, but like the Sweeners, he was also tough as nails. A life of survey in freezing cold Michigan apparently hardens a man. The trouble was, Dick hated me. Perhaps not so much me personally, but what I represented, a younger man coming to replace him. I'll take my last commercial break right here, and when I return, I'll tell you more about Dick and Season 1 of the Palenque Mapping Project. Yes, it's another commercial of me promoting me. This time, it's an ask to support Archeoed through Patreon. I've discovered that a lot of my listeners don't know what Patreon is, so let me explain. Simply put, Patreon is a website that allows fans to financially support their favorite creators. Musicians, artists, comics, and podcasters like me. Like the NPR model, it allows for one-time donations or monthly charges on your credit card called sustaining memberships. Those sustaining memberships are wonderful because they create a monthly budget that creators can depend on and plan around. You can support Archeoed with as little as $5 a month or as much as you like. The process is really very simple. Just make an account with Patreon and choose Archeoed as your recipient. But you might be saying, but wait a second, Archeoed is free. Why would I choose to pay for it? Because, again, just like NPR, quality programming doesn't exist without public support. I made this podcast on a lark, sitting in my closet during the pandemic. But now it has tens of thousands of fans and dozens of Patreon supporters. Archeoed's success is starting to prove that responsible, truthful portrayals of ancient history can be popular and financially viable. Aliens, ghosts, and white guys that built Atlantis are not the only things that history fans want to hear about. So why support Archeoed through Patreon? So I can have the financial resources to expand my reach and increase the audience. With your help, I can challenge the notion 
that only sensationalized versions of ancient history sell. It's easy. Just Google Patreon Archeoed and you're on your way. I'm betting on the fact that you would agree that Archeoed is at least as valuable to you as a cup of Starbucks once a month. So come on, put a little skin in the game and help me challenge those other strange versions of history. I'm back. So, as I was saying, Dick Beestrip hated me. He considered me a uh, wet-behind-the-ears know-nothing. And he wasn't completely wrong. I had a lot to learn about professional survey, and I had hired the Sweeners to teach me. Dick had already been the cross-group project surveyor for a season, and his work was to be folded into mine. From his perspective, he was being laid off and replaced by a kid. Mapping Palenque was a huge honor, and he wanted it for himself. But I had the permission and the grant. And the facts were that it was going to be a brutally difficult project, more than a man in his 70s could really do. He knew that, and that pissed him off too. Even in just those first two months, Dick had hurt himself rather badly. The first time was during mapping at Temple 17. He was teaching Kristen Cash and I how to pick points on the temple to shoot in. He was ignoring me and trying to teach just Kristen. The jungle was thick on top of the temple, and I gave Kristen one of my basic pieces of advice. Don't touch the jungle. Dick immediately retorted. He said, unless you know what the hell you're doing. To illustrate his point, he grabbed hold of a small tree trunk and swung himself around the temple's edge. But the tree was rotten inside and broke off immediately. Dick hit himself in the head with the now log in his hand, knocking himself off the side of the temple. Kristen and I watched in horror as he slid backwards on his stomach, dislodging rocks as he went. As he slowed to a stop at the base, he looked back up at us just in time for a rock to roll down and hit him right in the face. We ran down to him, and he shook me off as I tried to help him up. As he barked that he was fine, we could see that he had lost a front tooth. But that tough old bird just took a drag off his cigarette, which he had managed to hold during his entire fall, and said, let's just keep working. I just walked away, and after about an hour, Kristen convinced him to go back to the camp. Still to this day, I walk past Temple 17 and think, somewhere in there is a Caucasian front tooth, and it's going to freak out future archaeologists. Anyhow, I learned what I needed from the Sweeners, but when they left, it was just me and Dick for another three weeks. There was only one laser theodolite now. We had three when the Sweeners had brought theirs. Dick found ways to keep me from using the final one. He always had a few shots to take on his map before handing it off to me. But that went on for almost two weeks. I spent my time in the office learning survey input software, or sometimes I made tape and compass maps of sections of the ruins, or sometimes I was helping the excavations at the Temple of the Cross. 
But finally, the Morales family, actually just Moises, asked if I could do a survey of his land next to the archaeological park. He called it El Panchan, which means above the sky in Sotzil. On paper, Moises had subdivided the five hectares into parcels for each of his eleven children. There was also a big chunk he intended to give to his girlfriend, Rashida. Dick said he would supervise me in making a formal map of Panchan, to make sure that my survey skills were up to snuff. So started a few long days of Dick insulting me as we mapped our way through the hippie traveler camps that Moy allowed on the land. But about halfway through, Dick invited the excavation crew to the ruins at night to show them how to use the theodolite and the north star to determine true north, as opposed to magnetic north. Sadly, he tripped over a balustrade in the dark, bruising his chest badly, and he might have broken some ribs, too, but he refused to go to the doctor. But for better or worse, Dick had to lay down, and the survey machine was finally mine. I finished mapping El Panchan, and it pleased the Morales family very much, especially the topography parts. It showed them where the best non-flood-prone parts of the land were. Unbeknownst to me at the time, I'd be living in El Panchan myself during Season 2, and my map showed me exactly where I should build. But anyhow, let's get back to the Palenque mapping project. I had a plan to have various people come to Palenque and help me for the next four months. All I really needed was two people to run the machine and rod and a few machete guys. The first to arrive was Steve Seamer. I've known Steve since we were 13. We were both kicked out of the same Catholic school. Steve had great computer skills and was a huge help with the software that produced our maps. He was the one who figured out how to incorporate B-Strip's data into our own. The process was laborious. The theodolite had a port to plug in a Texas Instruments calculator. That calculator had a cartridge slot where we could plug in the survey data collection software. At the end of each field day, we would upload the data from that calculator into the computer that Sheely had bought me. Then we used a software called TDS, Tripod Data Systems, to create a 3D mesh of the points we had shot. Finally, those files were converted into AutoCAD, where we made the final pretty versions of our growing map. Steve helped out with the entire procedure, which was no small undertaking. He also helped me in the field, though he didn't really like the hot, sweaty, and dangerous days in the jungle. About the same time, I hired a random traveler to help me in the field, a young Englishwoman named Elizabeth Corin. She and her brother had been traveling through Central America, but he had been arrested in Belize, and she was on her own. She needed money, and she was a good artist, so I bought her a pair of boots in town and put her to work. Elizabeth and I were good partners. I taught her how to use the theodolite, but also my relational mapping technique that I had developed back in Mashna. 
It was in those early days that I realized I was going to have to map Palenque twice. Once with tape and compass to identify where the buildings were, and a second time with the laser theodolite. The jungle at Palenque is so thick that you can't see more than 10 feet in any direction. So we couldn't just set up the machine and start shooting. Our machete guys had to cut lines of sight for us. To make things more complicated, this was a national forest and the rangers didn't want us to cut anything. There was a list of plant types that we were forbidden from cutting and they were always lurking behind a rock waiting for me to make a mistake. So the first step was making a plan to shoot all the buildings without clear cutting. To do so, we would find a building and draw it small on a piece of graph paper. Then we'd fan out and find the nearest next building, drawing that one in. The process would repeat until we had filled a piece of graph paper. That strategy of letting one building lead us to another and then the next is what I call relational mapping. Those graph paper maps would also be the key for leading the machine through. Usually, the area on the graph paper was about 100 by 100 meters, so a big enough area to bring out the machine and start mapping. I would annotate it with notes like, the machine can see five buildings from right here, or don't go this way, there's a tree fall. Elizabeth and I got really good at drawing those maps together. On a good day, we could find and record 20 structures. With us, of course, were the invaluable machete guys, macheteros in Spanish. I had gone through a number of macheteros that Alfonso had recommended, but most of them were older guys who didn't really respect my authority. One day, in the sloping jungles behind the North Group, it all came to a head. The older guys were taking another unauthorized break when a two-meter-long lance slithered through them. They all jumped up and scrambled away, except for a 14-year-old boy named Manuel Cruz. Manuel got up, threw his machete end over end, and pinned the snake to the ground right behind its head. I looked at them all and said, You're all fired, but I'm keeping the boy. Manuel, and eventually another teenager named Rogelio Lopez, became my machete crew for all three years of the project. Both were Maya folks living in a village named Naranjo, and these days both have families and cornfields up there in Naranjo, and they don't come to town much anymore. But occasionally I'll see them in the street, and we'll reminisce about our adventures together. Well, I'm past my 30-minute episode goal again, and I've barely even started telling this tale. I guess I'll make a part two, maybe even a part three. Again, my podcast, my rules. But to end this episode, I'll tell you about the saddest part of season one, the passing of Linda Sheely. It was April 18th, a Saturday, and we were entertaining guests at the project house in town. I was sitting on the back porch chatting with David Stewart when the news of her passing arrived. He looked at me and said, I met her as a child on this very porch, and now I hear of her death in the same place. That still gives me chills when I think about it. A few days later, 
At the same time as her wake in Austin, a group of us went to the ruins and planted a saba tree in her honor. Moises found the sapling, and we took turns digging a hole in the plaza near the palace. Then we sat in a circle around it, telling our favorite Linda Sheely stories. It was simultaneously sad and inspiring. That tree is now 50 foot tall, and it's Linda to me. I go say hi every time I go to Palenque. Okay, I'm a pumpkin for this episode. Next month I'll continue this tale, and my craziest stories of the project are still to come. Until then, Happy New Year. This is Ed, signing off. You've been listening to Archeo Ed, a podcast written, produced, and distributed by me, Ed Barnhart. If you liked what you heard, then subscribe, like, share, comment, and do all those other things that I'm supposed to ask you to do. If you didn't, then don't do any of that stuff. And if you really liked it, support ArcheoEd through my Patreon account. I make these podcasts for free, but I am not opposed to financial support. Until next time, thanks for listening. All rights reserved. Copyright 2022.